0: Yo, mama. Oh, you know, no, no, no. Ah, yay, yay. La, dele, ne, de. mm-hmm. mama, oh, yeah. Yeah, la yo, mama. Oh, yo, 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 you, know. <f AUDICS ra> hey, hai, hi, hai, Oh, you know, no, 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 you don't. Did you, Mamma, Mamma, oh, oh, you did you, do.
1: Hello, everybody. Just getting set up here.
0: Tiddy, oh, you Oh,
1: you
0: no, 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 no. you hoo, you do do? oh, you do. Oh, mum, mum, Oh, you la, 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 you you know you did? you did? you Oh, you know.
1: Sorry guys, we're having some trouble with Facebook. Hmm, wonder why.
0: Hmm. Why are we having trouble?
1: Yeah, we seem live. We got Michael Gelb. We got Claudia. Hmm. Okay, everybody. Looks like we're live, so we're gonna go live. Thank you for joining today. The last two episodes have not been have not been easy to swallow to study. I mean, it's all about it's about libel and slander, about hate, about the challenges that we, the Jewish people, have faced. And, you almost uh, could forget that we are initiating a string of songful Psalms. This is the first of the Shir HaMalot. Now we address this question right at the beginning of Kapitel Kufchof of Psalm 120, where we say Shir HaMalot, and the very next words are, Batsarata Karati V'aneni, and we're talking about crying out in distress. And the Rebbe kind of gave us an uplifting take on that. that even when we're faced with distress, we nonetheless have faith and optimism. And we can sing to Hashem. And Hashem answers us. But the subsequent verses have been rather dark. We talked about all of the lies, the demonization, the libel, that we the Jewish people have faced time and again. Only this morning I was so saddened and somewhat angered to see that my my first cousin, he and his wife have the privilege of serving as the Rebbe Shluchem in Vancouver Island. That's on the far east of this great country. And this morning when people came to Shola, to the nursery school, there was graffiti that was scrawled last night by young people. I guess the address or welcoming sign of the Chabad Center said kill the Jews and gas Jews on the very same day that people around the world stop think and remember the terrible atrocities that were perpetrated against us just a few short decades ago and yet we are tasked with remaining ever optimistic and being joyful But not delusional. (laughs) Because delusions are really dangerous. And they don't help anybody. Guidance, if not specific answers to questions, guidance, perspective, is always going to be given to us in our Holy Torah. It's like a stunning stroke of Ashkaka Pratt's divine design. That today we're going to together study the last two verses of the 120th Psalm. They are verses in which David HaMelech, speaking in the voice of the nation of Israel, expresses a great deal of exile fatigue and frustration, sadness, at the endless stream of hate directed against us. And we're not to blame we are not to blame. David HaMelech says that very clearly. It's a sobering, sobering verses. Yet at the same time, these verses are the climax of the first of the Shir HaMalot and Ein Adam Shor Shira. As the Rebbe famously told the Hasidic singing sensation or superstar, as you may call him, Mordechai, Mordechai ben David, the Rebbe said, is the chmashma from Rashi? We can see from the words of Rashi, as an nigen dafayid besimcha, because Rashi says in Adam Shira Songs only issue forth when you are happy, glad in your heart. So the Rebbe said to this Hasidic singer, the Rebbe said it seems that a person sings when they're happy. And here we have 15, 15 chapters, psalms of Tehillim, which begin with the word sheer. Most are Hamalot, The next one is la-malot. But it's all sheer. And a song necessarily is about happiness. And the first psalm doesn't seem to be very happy. So allow me to pose it that if you stay with me, until the last drop of torah life elixir energy if you stay with me to savor till the last drop we will we will bring this journey full circle and we will end on a very very joyful and optimistic note which is actually how david hamelech ends he does end optimistically and joyously But that's going to take us some time to get to. No quick fixes. You will not hear any jingles here. This is real study of real Torah. The words of Hashem are always upright. If you study Torah, if you study it right, you will invariably come to gladness and to joy in heart. But let's begin the journey as I mentioned in our previous episode these classes are in a sense standalone you can watch any episode and I think you'll benefit but to really appreciate the full profundity and the depth of the messages being conveyed of the ideas being articulated we have to be honest. I mean, th- these, these episodes flow into each other. One does lead to the next. After all, these are verses from a common psalm, from a common chapter of the book of Tehillim. We learned previously, when David speaks in the voice of the Jewish people, and he cries out to Hashem in distress. And the source of that distress and the agony came from the lies that were directed against us. In the previous episode, David Melach bemoans in a word that is found only once in the entirety of Tanakh, "Oyeli," like "Oyve," "Oyeli." What was to me kigarti for? He speaks of the long, difficult. And challenging exile we the Jewish people have faced. And with this, verse 6 of the 120th Psalm opens with the word Rabat. Rabat shokhnolo nafshi. Now, the word Rabat comes from the word rov or harbei. A lot of. Rabat shokhnolo nafshi which really would translate as a lot or a great deal, has my soul dwelt with those who hate peace. We haven't talked about war or peace in this psalm up until this point. We've alluded to the anti-Semitic attacks that really haven't ended on the Jewish people. We've alluded to the hate that has inundated us and surround us. We've, we've talked about facing, facing off with these people, not to argue, but just to ask why the lies. If you seek the betterment of humanity, why would you lie? Why would you create deception? Nobody profits. Nobody benefits from it. But here, David HaMelech introduces us to a new view the view that he sees the enemies of the Jewish people as sone shalom haters of peace and he says i've dwelt for a long time for a lot amongst haters of peace it's interesting that rashi doesn't comment at all i mean in some ways this verse is fairly self-explanatory it's also interesting That many of the other commentaries do they do they do point out they do elucidate let's begin for example with the mitsudat david who says rabat zman rav zman is time and rav is a lot so rabat is kind of a conjunction of a lot of time it's it's as if the word time has somehow been included in the word Rabat because we, instead of writing Rav, we wrote Rabat and somehow that tough seems to indicate a lot of time. I think in English you would say, this has gone on for too long. when you hear somebody say, too long, or, you know, how's the wait for my vaccine? Oh, you'll be waiting for two months. That's too long. You didn't have to say too long of a time. It's self-understood, we're talking about a time or a wait, so he says. Rabat is not a lot of something; it's too much time. This has gone on for too long. Zman rav, a lot of time. Shachno nafshi, my soul has dwelt im sein shalom, with the haters of peace. Uh, indeed, it has. I mean, we are sadly centuries ahead of the Mitsudas David's having written these words. but adayin Mashiach still hasn't come we still continue to suffer the devastating effects of our very long and unprecedented, in length, certainly, Galut. If we take a look in the Ebenezer, the Evanezer says, Rabat, he says, the tough Rabat is Tachat It replaces, it takes the place of the hay So, the word Rav would not be appropriate here because it says shachna. Shachna means has dwelt, or she has dwelt. And we speak about Shokhna lo, she has dwelt, nafshi, now the word nefesh is, is, um, has a feminine tense to it. So Rabat Shokhna lo, nafshi, for too long has my soul dwelt. Rabat Shokhna lo, Rabat he says, it could have said rabba, but it says Rabat instead. And even as her quotes a number of other examples, for example, Vishavat Shavat LaNasi, she returned to the prince. And he says, Umila Tohar." It becomes almost like a title. Too long a time. Like, how long was that? Too long. It was a long time. It it becomes like a, a almost like a description. It's not to say a year, two years, five years, ten years, a hundred years, a thousand years, too long. Too long, a descriptive term. The time is too long, or very long. It'd be very long is the right thing. Very long, long, a long time. It's, it's, it's a midat zman, it's a, an increment, a measure of time. And the Ezra says, v'zeh, and expressing it this way, it alludes to, it speaks to, or hints to, the length of Galut. So Galut has been very long. It's been a long slog, a, a long sojourn. David HaMelech is saying this before it began because he was prophetically inspired. He knew, he knew what we would be facing, and he said, Rabat Shachna Nafshi. The Meiri, Rabbeinu Menachem Meiri, similarly says that the word rabat yore orech zman it indicates length of time. It's as if to say orech zman nafshi. My soul has dwelt for a long time, for a long time. This has been a long time. That's the way. That's that's the way. Um, I, I suppose you would say Metzudas David. Even Ezra Meiri said it. A long time. The Radak, Rabbeinu David Kimchi frames it a little bit differently. And I just want to, you know, be transparent with you. I don't claim to fully understand the syntax of the Radak always. So I'm going to tell you actually the way two English translations that claim to have understood the Radak framed it. And, you know, I, I, I presume that they're kind of right. I, he says that the tough, the tough, rabat is instead of rabba, I don't know what that means. It's not for closeness. I, I, don't, I don't know what that means. I'm not sure. And Radak says, Omar, ravli. This is too long for me. Ravli, begalut. This, this exile is too long for me. Why is it too long for me? Because imgoi with a nation that hates peace. So the... What's it called? The uh, Judaic oppressed translates it this way. Radak renders, I have had enough of exile that that hates peace. In the Arts Grove version, the... And again, this is what he, I'm just quoting this because I, I don't know this to be correct or incorrect. I, I, I'm presuming that the Rabbi Fierstein, the author, is probably wiser than me and more learned than me. He says that although Radak explains, although the word should be read rabba, which means long, the letter tough is affixed in, quote, dramatic effect. Okay. I mean, I... I don't know where his source is for that. I don't, I don't know. That's his understanding of it. He may be right. In other words, he says this is about dramatic effect to emphasize how long the exile endures with no end in sight. So they're not translating the same thing, actually. The Judaica press's translation is, I've had enough. The article translation, or elucidation, according the supposedly Radaka, is saying it's dramatically. Presenting how long it is. I think that the Judaica press is closer to the truth, and I'll tell you why. Because in, in Mitsudas Davar and Ibn Ezra and in Me'iri, we're talking about a long time. Mitsudas says Zman rav uh, Ibn Ezra says, he says, Orechagolos, Midas Zman, Midasman, Orechagolos, a, a measure of time. And and, and and Radak says Miiri says Gyora, as I read to you before. He says Yora Orechman, but Radak doesn't say he's not talking about the time. He says it's it's long for me, Ravli. I had enough of this. I don't think the art school is right here. I don't I don't I don't think with all due respect to Rabbi first, I don't think this is about drama. I think this is this is the difference between describing time as long. Or describing my feelings. <laughs> so, you know, the, the original theory of, of relativity. There's a silly story that's told about um, an older man who comes to his nephew, who's in university and well-read and, and well-educated, and he says to him, Was is mit this Einstein guy? What's with Einstein? The theory of relativity, relativity. What, what does it mean? I don't understand. Explain it to me. So the, the, the nephew says, uncle is very simple. He says, when you were sitting at your daughter's wedding for hours, how long did it feel? He said, it felt like a blink of an eye and it was over. He said, and when you sit for five minutes in the dentist chair to get your your teeth drilled, how long does it feel? He says, oh, it feels like hours. All right, he says, the nephew says, perfect uncle. That's the theory of relativity. The same amount of time, a different experience feels different. So the uncle says to his nephew, tell me, he says, from this, this Einstein guy, he makes a living. <laughs> so in other words like this, we could look at something, objectively speaking, and say, that's long. That's long. Or we could look at something, subjectively speaking, and say, that's too long for me. It's too long for me. It may not be long for others. For me, that's too long. A person might be in a a situation where they're really having a bad time. So, when when is it over? Eh, It's always over tomorrow. It's just a week left. That's too long. I can't take this anymore. Now, when it's too long for you, it's more of a qualitative statement. The intensity of what's happening is something you can't bear. Because the time isn't actually different. But it's what fills the time. It's the content of the time. It's the experience. Radak... Focuses on the experience of Galut rather than the elapsing of time or passing of time in and of itself. And to be sure, our Galut has been very long. Very, very, very long. Far longer than any previous Galut we, the Jewish people, have ever ever experienced. And far longer than is even reasonable for a Galut to be. Galut means an exile. To be exiled, to be displaced, and to continue to long for your home, and to continue to feel exiled for more than 1950 years is, um, let's just say, it, it's mind-boggling. It, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. The Rebbe said, it doesn't even make sense in Sechel de Kedusha. From a Torah perspective, it just doesn't add up, it doesn't add up. The Rebbe actually said something. Uh, Stunning. And it was a it was a I think it was in the early 80s. The Rebbe, said, the Rebbe said that if there would be an explanation, maybe we wouldn't yearn for Mashiach so much because you know we, we kind of understand it. The Rebbe, the Rebbe said that seemingly Hashem has put us in this situation where the length of galut simply is impossible to explain. It's impossible to make sense out of. Because only when we have no explanation for it will we refuse to proverbially accept the continuation of Golos and demand Daloi Golos Admosai, which is what Hashem wants us to do, not to forget about Him and to demand that we go home. For the greatest Galut is when we forget that we are in Galut. I recently shared with you a famous story of Baruch of Mejibush, grandson of the Bar Shemtev, who found. A grandson of his. And he found him crying in the courtyard of the, of the shul. And he said to him, why are you crying? And he said, we're plating, hide and go seek. He said, that's nice. He said, no, it's not nice. Because, because I, I'm, I was supposed to hide. And he said that I hid so well, all the other children gave up and stopped looking for me. And that's why he was crying. And as the story goes, the baruch became very emotionally stirred. And he said, Shalilam, dear God, you've hidden so well. The children have stopped looking. When the Rebbe related the story, Al Asar Rosh I think the year was 1981, maybe 79, he, he wept. He wept at the at the length and the intensity of the galut that we're in. So the galut is too long, but Radak says, David HaMelech, by saying, Rabat, it's not just drama. Rabat shokhna lo nafshi means, I, I can't stand this anymore. This is too long for me. Forget about objectively too long. It's subjectively unbearable. It's unbearable to have to live with those who hate peace. When you love peace. It's an unbearable experience. Kalut is unbearable. It's not very joyous, eh? But it's realistic. To be an optimist or to be joyous about life shouldn't require delusion. We should should be able to look at um, the sobering realities and still be optimistic and still be joyous. But this verse leaves, it would seem, little room for that. And it gets worse, <laughs> as you'll see in the next verse. The Sephardim says, What are Sayyidina Shalom? What are those who hate peace? Sephardim says this is very much a continuation of what we learned over the last two episodes. He says this is about the libel, the blood libels, the libeling of the Jewish people. You know, we control the whole world, we want to harm enslave, mass murder. Right? Don't you know that? So this Farno says, <inaudible> in order to ignite conflict. To ignite conflict. <inaudible> the only way is with their lies. So they continue to lie about us, continue to demonize us, continue to frame us falsely so as to ignite conflict. They need conflict. So they must hate peace. Because anybody who loves peace doesn't want to ignite conflict or prolong or cause conflict. And yet, here we are living amongst those who hate peace, who continue to lie about us, to spread deceit about us, to libel us in order to promote and ignite conflict. I can't take it. We can't take it, says Davra Melech. Please, enough. And then Melech goes further. And he says, Ani hai, shalom. I'm I'm about peace. But when I speak, then they are for war. So <laughs> what does that mean? I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And when you don't speak, maybe don't speak. What does that mean? I, I am peace. I am peace. But when I speak, they are for war. I think that this uh, verse is inherently problematic. It's like, it's almost like there's, there's words missing here. Ani <laughs> shalom So, although Rashi doesn't comment in verse 6, in verse 7 he does comment. And Rashi says this, Ani shalom means I am peace imohem. I am at peace with them. So, because I'm at peace. Well, maybe you should communicate that. Maybe you should tell them you're at peace. Maybe they're they're misreading you. Maybe your body language indicates something else. Maybe, maybe you look defensive. Maybe you look suspicious. Maybe the behavior of the Jewish people indicates that somehow they don't want peace. So David Amal says, And when I try to communicate that, shalom. I communicate peace. I say, we want peace. We don't want to fight with anybody. We all want peace. What happens? Not only they don't respond to the peaceful overtures, him boyim So they're demonizing us. They're libeling us. And and we only want peace with everybody else. And when we speak about, we just want peace. They attack us. It brings war. So why does David and have to begin with the statement first, Ani shalom, I am peace. And only afterwards, V'chiyadaber, Rabbeinu Yosef Chiyun, as cited by the Ma'am Laws, explains it this way. He says, "Vim toimar, and if you will say, you know why they hate us? They hate us because we hate them. The president of the United States in 1948 was Harry S. Truman. And there's a lot to say about Harry Truman, but I want to say this. He was the first one in the world to recognize the nascent state quote-unquote, state of Israel. First one to recognize, to, to, to telegraph uh, congratulations. But, um, so he seems like a friend. I mean, he was, at the same time, he, he wrote Jews are very selfish. <laughs> really, we're very selfish. He wrote this in the aftermath of the Holocaust. Six million is the number that's used. If you'll research it, you'll find that the number is probably closer to 11 million Jews. Jews are very selfish. It's a, it's... How about um, if Harry Truman would have said, black people are selfish, Hispanic people are selfish, gay people are selfish, Muslims are selfish, how, how would that go over? Maybe some cancel culture would be in order, the woke culture, the... nobody blinks, the Jews are selfish. So, so you know why we hate you guys? Because, because you, you hate everybody. So David and Melech precludes this. He says, no, 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 no. And if you will say, on Hussein and Moisim, we hate them, ain't it's just not true. Ani shalom, says David. Ani shalom. We are at peace with others. But they are not at peace with us. Shortly after, the world-famous anti-Semite Mel Gibson released his libelous film, The Passion, which depicted the murder of Jesus implicating Pharisees, Jews dressed in 18th century, 19th century Polish Jewish clothing, because that's probably what Pharisees, quote unquote, wore 2,000 years ago. You know, the hook nose and all that nice stuff. So I had a group of students come and visit me from one of the local Catholic schools. I've been doing this for years, almost, almost two decades. You can, you can go on my YouTube channel. I think there's even a video uploaded on Chabad.org. You can, you can see I have a little dog and pony show I developed over the years. I talk about the seven Noahide laws, which is actually our sacred duty, our responsibility. Um, one anti-Semite even... Um, Posted something on my YouTube channel saying, like, okay, Who are you to lecture to others? All right, I, I leave the comments. People can read that and make their own decisions. It, it took place actually in this very room where we're sitting now. And and I was, I was doing my, my thing. And I, I could sense a hostility. I, I, I was able to read that the, the, the students weren't. As friendly students are usually very very friendly, and it's always it's a great atmosphere and and this morning something wasn't I didn't somehow I I felt it So I I did my thing and I talked about God and Humanity and the relationship which we have and what we believe and then one of the students um, Puts his or her hand up and says um, so why does everybody hate you I? Go I beg your pardon he goes you know everybody hates the Jews I said that you are blaming the Jewish people for being the object of people's hate he says well they wouldn't hate you for no reason I said I see so you're probably one of those who subscribe to the notion that the rape victim is guilty of being beautiful because if she wasn't beautiful or attractive people wouldn't have raped her I said you want me to explain to you why you hate somebody? Why don't you ask the people who hate why they hate? So another student pipes up and says, well, if everybody hates you, it's gotta be warranted. I said, I don't see the logic. I fail to see the logic there. Hate is a terrible thing. If people hate, they have a problem. So another student says, well, if everybody hates you, why don't you guys get the hell out of here? I'm like, I'm in shock actually at this point. I'm like, really? I said, when we lived in Eastern Europe, the graffiti said, go to Palestine, which was just a name for the province that was part of the Ottoman Empire and then part of the British Empire. It's called Palestine. The Palestine Philharmonic was a Jewish group. The Palestine Post was a Jewish newspaper. Go to Palestine. So I said, so, so we went to Palestine, and now everybody's telling us, go back to Poland. I said, where do you want us to go? He said, why don't you guys go to outer space? So I said, um, this meeting is over. I'm not going to entertain this kind of speech. I said, you guys have some really serious issues. And by the way, the teachers that accompanied this group were red. I mean, they were like red as a beet. One of them was like shaking. I said, I'm not going to dignify uh, you guys by spending any more time with you. You're welcome to, to leave. And I just walked out. And one of the teachers came, stopped by my office afterward and apologized profusely for what had happened. And I said, listen, I mean, I, I accept your personal apology, but you guys really have a problem there. I said, and I, and I really think you have to deal with it. And I, it was very clear to me that the libel, the lies of Mel Gibson's movie, had directly ignited that little storm of hate. Right right here in front of me, right here in this country, and we live in a good country. Most citizens are decent, peace-loving people. This is what we, the Jewish people, have dealt with and continue to deal with. Ani shalom. We have no hatred in our hearts. Towards anybody. I'm at peace, says David melch But when I speak of that peace, not only is it not accepted, not only is it rebuffed, it in fact somehow is responded to with war. Come to fight with me. The Mitsudas David says this. The real issue is ani shalim, I am peace. It doesn't grammatically make sense. It should say ani ba'ad shalom, I am for peace. Which is how I translated or titled this class. I am for peace. I am peace. What does that mean? So Rashi says, I am peace or at peace with them. I am peace is a euphemism, almost a poetic expression. I am at peace with them. But the Mitzudah's David says, in my mouth, there is words of peace. It goes without saying that I am at peace. I am a peaceful person. He it says it's much more than that. In my communication, I'm, I'm communicating. But when I, when, I, when I actually give it air, when I verbalize it. Instead of them being neutralized, instead of them reciprocating my overtures of peace, my words of peace, there's like a backward reciprocity. They respond, or they are stirred, awakened. I dare I use the word inspired, that's not really, they're, they're, they're cajoled somehow to war. Because, because, I, because I speak peace, that's pretty demoralizing. The Ebenezer says, Ani Shalom is literal. It's not just, I have words of peace. No, no, no. I am peace. I am peace? He says, yeah, we find. David Amel says, I need tefillah. I am prayer. It's, it means it's something that's so overwhelming within my being. It so saturates me that it becomes my defining hallmark. I am peace. Jewish people are peace. But Daber, when I speak to Anshe Meshach, and Kedar, here the Ibn links this to the lingering, festering, seemingly endless exiles of Meshach and Kedar, of East and West. The anti-Semitism that came from Esau, the descendants of Esau, and those who represent or are part of the emblem of Esau, as we talked about it yesterday, Rome. And then those in the Middle East or Arab lands, as we talked about yesterday, Meshach and Keder represent the origins of Christendom and Islam, which tragically have been responsible for an enormous amount of anti-Semitism, an enormous, an ocean of anti-Semitism. It's a tragic fact. You can't, you can't avoid that. I say this with great sadness. inshallah. I'm very happy when people believe in God. I'm cheered and buoyed when I see people engaging in religious practice. But when people are fascist and hateful and then they inject a sense of religious fervor into that fascism, it is positively terrifying. The only thing worse than atheist anti-Semitism is religiously fueled anti-Semitism because religion and faith is a great elixir. It just depends where you're injecting it. If you inject religion or faith into acts of loving kindness, they'll be that much more selfless, that much more sensitive, that much more devoted, dedicated to a point of self-sacrifice and transcendence of one's own orbit of comfort or habit. But when you inject The notion of religious fervor and faith into the bloodstream of fascism of unwarranted hate that's it makes it that much worse that's what we have faced from meshech and kader unfortunately so the venezer says i am peace i am peace i don't want anything from anybody i am peace Somehow, the daber. As soon as I open my mouth, when I try try to speak peace, shalom la'anchem eshchokeder, hey, malamochama, they come at me for one. The Meiri similarly says, ani shalom, rotsone loma What David Admelach meant to say here is ish shalom, a man of peace, man of peace. That's who I am. The wrote, Anish shalom means Hayiti shalom, Ish Ish shalom. I was Hayiti Ish. I was a man of peace, in kula at peace with everybody. Don't want to harm anybody. Don't want to take anything away from anybody. At peace with everybody. But <laughs> when I tried to speak peace, hemalam Not only it doesn't bring peace, it brings war." The Amram, when they say, "Shahayot v'vari Ra," here the Seforno, for the first time, is now explaining to us what all the other Mepharshim say. So why does my why do my words kind of enrage these these people? Why do they? Why does it bring forth war? And the Seforno says it's a continuation of the libel. They say, oh, he's talking about peace. He doesn't want peace. He really wants war. So everything we say is turned on its head. I am peace. I speak words of peace. It's turned around. Here's how the Mizmarle the Toda puts it. It's a 16th century commentary on Tillum. Cited here in the Migdash Shemat. He says like this. He says, Ani shalom. Tochi kibari. What I say is what I mean. What I mean is what I say. There's no deception. There's no facade. There's no obfuscation here. I am peace and I speak words of peace. But they think they think it's a ruse. They think it's a Trojan horse. Yeah, the Jewish people, they speak a fast game. They talk about peace. They don't really want peace. They really want genocide. They really want to kill everybody. They really want to take everything away from everybody else. And I don't have to make this up. This is actually what you hear in the anti-Israel chat rooms. This is actually what the media parrots over. This is what the Arab leadership, tragically, is saying in Arabic to its people. <laughs> you could go to a, there's a, an online presence called memory, where they actually translate the words, that's, the monstrous words, the libelous words being said in their original language. It's horrific. So, Mismillah say that this is centuries before there was a proverbial state of Israel. Where Jews could defend themselves. This is when we were being led to the slaughter. On train tracks in the 1940s. And on horseback. Hundreds of years earlier. Or decades earlier. The Mizmah Lusayda says. Everything we say. Is turned on its head. And do you know why this is? Our sages tell us. Kol ha Anybody who seeks to disqualify, is actually self-projecting. So they are deceptive about their, quote, end quote, quest for peace. And this is quite literal in the circumstances that Israel faces today. Those who claim to want peace, Say openly. Say it openly. This is only a step forward. They speak about the destruction of Islam. They speak about the genocide of Islam. They speak about the June reign reality that they envision. The demonic dreams that they have. They say it openly. Whether it comes from Iran or whether it comes from Gaza said openly. They talk peace, but it's a sheep, a wolf in the sheep's clothing. And so they automatically make the assumption or frame us with exactly what they intend to do. Say, oh, the Jews are talking peace. They don't mean peace. They mean war. It's all a game. It's a deception. But the Mishnah says, David and Melech is pleading. He says, it's just not true. Be'emet ani shalom. Kilibi kipi. I'm saying it. That's what's in my heart. And it's the truth, my friends. We all know it. This is precisely what the Sepharono says in fewer words. Rabbeinu Vidal HaTsepharti, the North African uh, Torah sage, think Morocco, maybe Tunisia, 15th century. He says, even when I speak words of peace, I'm not responded to with anything but war. It doesn't even help to speak. I am peace. I can speak words of peace. He doesn't take the approach of that the words I say are the cause of war, he says, it's irrelevant. They are for war. There's nothing I can do to convince an anti-Semite. Wanna make peace with a neo-Nazi? You wanna make peace with Hitler? What kind of peace? Could you have made peace with evil? Is anybody that delusional? It's the same hatred. It's the same anti-Semitism. It's the same bias. It's the same lies. Unfortunately. So what difference will it make if I speak words of peace? It makes no difference. Ani, shalom, the amulchamah. Rabbi Vidal kind of glosses over the notion, he says, even v'chi adaber doesn't mean when I speak, or v'chi, or like as if my speech caused it. He says, it doesn't make a difference. My speech is irrelevant. I am peace. I speak peace. It makes no difference. And he says something interesting. Ravidal says that even when one goes to war, one can be for peace. The question is, what is the end goal? Is the end goal conflict? Or fascist domination? Or is the end goal peace? And, I mean, what he writes here could have been said by somebody defending Israel today. I don't remember which Israeli Prime Minister said, the difference between our soldiers and theirs is that our soldiers pray that the bullet shouldn't have to hit its target. Our soldiers hope that they shouldn't have to go to war. We fight because we love our people and our nation, whereas they fight because they hate and demonize Israel. Israel is in an existential battle for survival. If you were to compare the the Arab lands, Muslim-dominated lands in the Middle East and beyond, and the tiny little part of Eretz Yisrael, which is today called the State of Israel, it's not, I'm not exaggerating, it's literally a matchbox on a football field. And that's why there's no peace. Seriously. How can intelligent people even believe that? Yes, Israel has gone to war because it wanted peace, survival. In 1967, Israel launches on June 7th what has become today known as the Six-Day War, probably the greatest miracle in modern times. And yes, Israel launched the war, but it was a preemptive strike and it was entirely defensive in nature. Go back and listen to Nasser's Machshamoy speeches. Listen to the words that they were using. Go back and look at the caricatures in the Arab newspapers at the time. They were openly speaking about a second Holocaust. Openly. The government in Israel was preparing for tens if not hundreds of thousands of casualties it is a matter of fact and public record that the israeli rabbinate was taking stock of all national parks seeing what could be turned into cemeteries if we were to survive Parenthetically, there was one positive, really optimistic voice, and that was our Rebbe. The Rebbe launched a filling campaign. And he spoke about Hashem's miracles when nobody else was speaking about that. And these are all matters of public record. Jewish educational media is going to be releasing a film about this. The point is this. The point is, Avidal says, Israel in its wars. The nation of israel and even if you want to speak in modern-day terms of a state the purpose of the wars have always been defensive the goal of the war has been peace when israel invaded lebanon invaded lebanon the code name of the of the of the operation was shalom hagalil we needed to create peace in the north because the plo was launching endless terror attacks across the border from lebanon No country can be expected to see its citizens attacked again and again, living in mortal fear, and do nothing about it. It's inconceivable. Nobody would expect it. But it's expected of Israel. The lies, the deception, the libel, the demonization. (laughs) Where's the joy? Where's the where's the positivity? The Medrash Tillam stunningly puts it this way. Vikhiesh Adam? soyne Alam? Is there really anybody who hates peace? Hate peace? Not just refuses to be peaceful, hates peace. So the Nedish says says, Esau, Seine Shalom, Hashalom, hates the peace. The Huaymer. And this is indeed the meaning of what we find in the end of the book of Leviticus. Near the opening of Parshat Bechukotai, where it says, "Vinasati shalom ba'aretz," I will bring peace, I will give peace into the land. And our sages ask, "Really? When will there be peace in the land?" And our sages answer, "It will be peace. Ra I will remove violent, predatory animals from the land. Medish Tillam says, Ain ra, there is no wicked, evil animal, El save for the pig. And the pig, as Davar Amelach says in Psalm 80, menu the wild boar, the wild pig comes out of the forest. Ze Ace of this is Ace of the wicked. Let me remind you that earlier, when we spoke about these psukim, remember I told you that Zaro shall harasha. And verse 2? Misfat sheker, from the lying lips, from the seed of the wicked? And we made the case that that refers to Esau, to Ace of. Well, here you have it. So, what do we know about Esav? Our sages tell us Halacha bi'adua. It's like an immutable fact. Facts are stubborn things. It's a rule. The rule is Esav sona liyaakov. Esau Esav hates Jacob. Nothing will change that. No amount of compromise no amount of concession no amount of 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 giving giving up is going to satisfy the appetite of the monster who wants to destroy you instead what happens is and you can see this in real time over the last few decades Every time there's an attempt at reproachment, it is interpreted as a sign of weakness and vulnerability. I say this again with tremendous sadness, but every time political leadership in Israel speaks about peace, a wave of terror has followed. What did abandoning the Gaza Strip Turfing 10,000 Jews out of the homes they had built with blood, sweat, and tears. What did it do for us? What did Israel get as a result? Not a day of peace. Not a day of quiet. The minor attacks being launched daily on the inhabitants of Neve de Kalim became major attacks being launched at the entire southern flank of the part of Eretz Yisrael today called the state. It's a fact. How delusional can we be? Every single time the olive branch is extended, proverbially speaking, missiles are sent in return. Is this not exactly the words of David HaMelech? Is this not an unsufferably long exile? Wasn't Israel supposed to be the answer to anti-Semitism? Talk about a failed experiment. If it's the answer to anti-Semitism, it has become the singular source, the excuse for anti-Semitism today. And of course, our claim to Israel is not rooted in the ovens of Auschwitz. Chas v'shalom. Our claim to Israel comes from Hashem's Torah, from Jewish history, from a divine promise. And Israel has and continues to want peace. But v'chiyadaber, every time, we try to speak about that it in fact ignites a war conflict murder and mayhem violence perpetrated against us it's unbelievable it's so stunningly accurate and timely so where's the good news how do we look at the sobering reality and maintain a sense of inner equilibrium, positivity, and even joy. And remember, the name of the psalm is a song. So, let me introduce you first to a talk that the Rebbe edited. An edited talk on Parashas Vayetzeh. It's from a talk that Rebbe delivered on Shabbos Parsha's Vayeda in the year 1980. The Rebbe spoke about Galut. He spoke about exile. Yaakov's leaving Eretz Yisrael is the original paradigm of exile. And it's being pursued by Esau, by Esau. So why is it this way? What's the purpose of exile? So there's this phrase, Torah phrase, Yirida letzerich aliyah. Every descent is for the purpose of an appropriate ascent. Think of the runner who takes steps back before he or she jumps or sprints think of the bow you draw back in order to let the arrow fly forward these are what you would call a step back to take two steps forward a yurida a descent like the demolition of an old, even if serviceable structure, to replace it with a far more beautiful one. There was a beautiful hotel in, in Miami, in Bal Harbor. It was called the Sheraton. I actually stayed there. It's a beautiful place. And it was destroyed, demolished, razed. And in its place, a much larger and much more beautiful hotel was built. So the crew, the demolition crew, the people who designed, and it really was a very difficult job to design demolition like that and cart away all of the rubble. That wasn't an act of war. That wasn't a destructive act. That was a constructive act. All of that was part of the construction project. So the construction was, was, was inclusive of destructive construction. I think it's owned by the government of Kuwait, actually. <laughs> so when they had a budget for what it would cost to build the magnificent structure that's there, I forget the name of the hotel now. In order to achieve this, They had to include not only plans from the city of Bell Harbor, not only the engineering plans and the architectural plans. They had to actually plan the demolition without harming the buildings. It's pretty densely populated along the shoreline there on Miami Beach. It's a densely populated area. So they had to actually plan the demolition very carefully so that nobody was harmed or hurt. None of the other structures suffered any structural damage, but the building could be removed so that the far more beautiful one could be built. Now, if you were to chance upon a video, and I actually think you can see it on YouTube somewhere, of the demolition of this building, or demolitions of buildings like it, but you wouldn't be given anything more. You'd only see that narrow. If you could be present at the time, what would that look like? You'd say, that's an act of destruction. Why did they destroy the building? But when you see the bigger picture, when you have the larger panoramic view, you understand that the destruction is for the point of constructive. It's constructive destruction. That, my dear friends, is some metaphoric terminology for the destruction of the Beis Hamidash, for the suffering of Am All of this negativity is destructive but we see it as constructive for our nation. And the Rebbe said this very idea is encoded into the first of the Shir Hamalot. Before we began studying Psalm 120, I delivered a a presentation on the Shir Hamalot. And one of the things that we spoke about was the idea that Yaakov, the father Jacob, survived his difficult time with Laban, with Lavan, by reciting the Shir Hamalot. You can go back and watch that. So the songs of ascent have a lot to do with the displacement, the galut, the exilic paradigm of Yaakov, which presage the present reality. The Rebbe says, the conclusion of the first psalm. That's our verse. The conclusion. And the Rebbe notes the famous words that are articulated on the 12th page of the Gemara, Masechet Brachot, that says, "Hakol holech achar Everything follows the close. The Gemara there talks about the way certain prayers or blessings conclude. This is the climax. This is the conclusion. This is the closing of the first of the 15 psalms. That are supposed to represent songful joy. Ani shalom, the khiadab and which means, I'll read it to you in the edited Yiddish, Vasmeint, as Hachafilo, as Ervil Shalem, that even though David Hamelach speaking for the nation of Israel, once craves peace. Fund nonetheless, or despite it all, Hema bi they come to battle. They come to do war with me, says the Rebbe, citing the words of Rashi. And the Rebbe says that this melchama, that this war, is a physical or literal iteration or expression of a spiritual reality or a spiritual darkness and conflict. How is it possible that Hashem's chosen nation, chosen people should suffer so much. The answer is Hashem's concealment. And this is called in the phraseology of Chesidus the helem hester of galus. The helem, the concealment, the obfuscation that is galut. And especially, the Rebbe says, in the way this would percolate to filter into our own lives the nishyonot, the tests of faith, the things that not only vex but test us. It comes to get in the way of us serving Hashem. Oh, by the way, in order to serve Hashem, you not only need a healthy soul, you need a healthy body. The Magad of Mizritch famously said, a kleine in guf, a small crevice or orifice, an unnatural one that is, a wound in the bodily reality amounts to a loch, a great gaping vacancy. A wound in the neshama. If a person doesn't have his or her physical welfare, how will they serve Hashem? If we are being deported, incarcerated, murdered, how are we serving Hashem? There was no Talmud study in Auschwitz, you know. Very little of Odat Hashem went on in the concentration camps. It's not like there were services three times a day. So how are we supposed to serve Hashem if we're not given a moment of respite of peace? How can Hashem expect us to serve Him with joy when buses are blown up in Israel, when we fear for our security right here in this country? Be it broken glass or hateful graffiti, or subliminal threats, and sometimes overt threats. He's supposed to serve Hashem with joy. These are called tests, nisyenus. That's how we see it. It doesn't exonerate the perpetrators of hate and ugliness, but we see the world as more than just the sum of its parts. We see everything ultimately as being an expression of Hashem's creation and Hashem's world. So the Rebbe said, When he's saying Song of Ascents, and you finish with the words, Heimol HaMilchama, said the Rebbe, HaMa'alot, Ma'alot, Ascent, represents the Aliyah. Melchama, war, is horrible. War is hell. There are no good wars. There are no holy wars. That's a sick, twisted, demonic concept. Mechemes mitzvah means a morally mandated war. War is never holy, my friends. War is horrific. It's the greatest deprivation humanity has ever known. Sadly and tragically, far, far too many times during the course of human history. We open with the ma'ala, Shirla Maha malot, a song of ascent. We close with the lowest form of human anthropology, violence, conflict, war. So the Rebbe said, I yid tarzik nirit arayin a afilu a Yid is not ever permitted to put himself into a set of circumstances that will test his or her faith. Quite the contrary. In our morning blessings, we say daily, Please, Hashem, do not bring us into challenging circumstances. We never want to be tested. We do not subscribe to the idea that anti-Semitism is good for Jewish unity or good for Jewish survival, as I've heard people imbecilically say, chas But, at the same time, we begin with the words ani We don't look for conflict. ani shalom. shalom. All we want is to serve Hashem in peace. All we want is to make the world a more peaceful place. Peace is not achieved through war. Peace is not achieved through mulchamah or nesienis. So we don't look for that. But if it comes our way, and it has far too often, because Hashem promises us and sometimes we take this on faith that every descent will bring about an appropriate ascent sometimes for reasons we can't understand Hashem puts us in a situation of Hema boyam, lehilochim. they're coming to declare war as Tzvishin de heima This is plural. It doesn't just mean the notion of bad people, the Isavites, the Amalekites. It means materialism. It means the nature of things in this corporeal world, the the reality, the sobering reality of a world which seems to reject holiness and goodness, to reject the notion of a creator, and instead seeing the world as a free-for-all. As it is called in the 33rd chapter of Tanya, a public or free thoroughfare. So there's going to be those in a free country who have free speech and freedom of movement to use that. To bring about terrible things. And on this we say, sheer Hamalot. Not only will we not be sunk by these missiles, not only will we not be held back from continuing to study Torah and to speak a message of enlightening morality to the whole world. Not only will this not pull a chalicious, a weakness in our Vedas Hashem, nor adrab. On the contrary, these circumstances will bring out from within us, will inspire us to redouble our efforts, to find greater strength, perseverance, courage, and inner fortitude. And thus bringt as a state in a Matzifun Shir. And that brings us to joy. The Rebbe says, Chas <laughs> vishalam that we're joyous about Galut. Heaven for that we rejoice in the pain and the suffering and the agony and the persecution. But we ultimately frame all of this as a catalyst for greater growth. And out of the most daunting and horrific challenges that our nation ever faced during the Holocaust years has come about a revival of Jewish life and nationhood that is perhaps unprecedented during the course of our long, checkered, and difficult exile. We sing not only in spite and not only despite What has happened to us. But even strangely enough. Because of what has happened to us. In it we see the eternity of the Jewish people. In it we see the greatest ability. To not only survive. But in fact to triumph. As they say and it's cliche but still true. What doesn't kill you will make you stronger. It has essentially inoculated us against those who wish to seek us harm. And in this way, the Rebbe, the ultimate paragon of positivity, reframes the narrative. We don't look for these negative circumstances, but we will turn things around because we must. And that doesn't mean we make peace with the situation. Before saying the words, David <speaking> HaMelech expresses himself so emotionally, he says, Rabba sof, 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 shok, nafshi. How long suffering, how difficult, how long it is for me to live with this kind of reality and circumstance. But despite it all, we will continue to grow and to flourish. Let me end with some, me some good news, some better news. There's a fascinating Sikha. It's, it's also an, it's an edited sicha in the Hesophas, the editions, in the fifth volume of Lakuta Sichas. It's taken from the Fabregans of 1965 when the Rebbe devoted and promulgated a whole new series of studies to honor his mother, Rebbe Tzachana. And the Rebbe talks about the the final words, the last Rashi, which is found in Parshas Vayishlach. I actually delivered an in-depth class in my Parsha Climaxes. I encourage you to watch the whole class. It's fascinating stuff. But here's the kernel. You know, yesterday we talked about Genesis, uh, Genesis 10 and we talked about Genesis 25. But there's also, and that's about the children of Yefet, from whom comes Greece and Rome, and we talked also about the the children of Ishmael, from whom comes Kedar, Ishmaelites. We didn't talk about another collection of genealogy, and that's found in the end of Parshas Vayishlach, and there at the conclusion of Parshas Vayishlach, before focusing in Parshas Vayeshev on the development of Yaakov and his family, the Torah lists the descendants or the genealogy of Esau. So, we have in Genesis 36, verse 43, we have a list of the children of Asaph And we finish with the words Magdiel and Iram. So Rashi says, Magdiel, who Rome is Rome. So the Rebbe asks in the level of Pshut HaShol Mikra, why, why does Rashi have to talk about that? Why does he have to mention that Magdiel is Rome? As we say, what difference does it make to the understanding of the verses? So the Rebbe says, because earlier, when Yaakov takes leave of his brother Esau, Esau Esau says, we'll travel together. Yaakov says, yeah, it's not going to work. You start the journey. I'll be coming. To be precise. And Rashi commented and said, but did Jacob ever make that journey? Rashi says he will. He will in the end of time when Mashiach comes. As it is written, the Olum Mashiim These are the prophetic words of Avadia, a righteous convert from the nation of Edom, Lishpaites Har Esof to judge the Mount of Esof. So comes the question, this last galut, the fourth galut, as it's proverbially referred to in Torah literature, is called galut romi, the Roman galut. What does that have to do with Esau? It's nothing to do. Esau, Edom is in the Middle East. This is in, in Italy. Now, Yesterday we talked about the idea of Meshech being Tuscany, Rome. So the Rebbe says, that's why Rashi feels compelled to tell you Magdiel is Romy. Now in that class, I actually trace the source and go back to the Medrash, which of the Roman kings was actually a direct descendant of Esau and the dream that he had, and in exchange with the sages. I encourage you to go watch that class on Paschus for yishlach But at any rate, the Rebbe says that the idea of Magdiel being Rome that there's also a, a euphemism. Number one, magdiel comes from the term gdula, magdiel from the word gadol, romemut. Romimut means exalted. Roimi, as it's known in Hebrew. Rome means exalted. The ebishter was mirroimim. The ebishter, God Almighty, raised Rome to greatness, exalted Rome. And that's why it's called magdiel. Magdiel means God, raised them to this position of greatness, world dominance. And there's another allusion. It alludes to the notion of Higdil Al Kalil, that Rome proverbially set out to rival all gods. What God? Rome. Uber Alice, they said. An empire that spread itself really across Eurasia in an unprecedented way. Dominating North Africa, Northern Europe, and deep east into Asia. And Rebbe said, here's a little problem. If Magdil is Rome, who is Iram? Because after Magdiel comes Iram. And the Rebbe cites a number of different commentaries who maintain that Iram is Rome. Almost two names for the same nation. But this is problematic because in Chassidus we talk about the notion of the world of unholiness characterized by the number 11, and the proof is brought that there were 11, not 10, but 11 nations spawned by Esau. So there's got to be number 11. The Rebbe says something quite remarkable. He says, ultimately, what's really going on here is that Magdiel and Erom are both Rome. But in Rome, there are two stages. The first stage of Rome is Magdiel, from the terminology Higdal al Khalil, defiance of God. This is the way Rome opposed godliness and goodliness, persecuting the Jewish people. For centuries on end. However, there is another iteration of Rome, a Western civilization. And that is the notion of Iram, which, as the Medrash links it to the terminology of La'arim tisavriais, to gather mounds of treasures to bring to Melech HaMashiach. In other words, that in the end of time, the same nation that was punctuated with so much hate, the same nation in whom throbbed an endless amount of animosity, the same nation will actually become friendly. The same culture and civilization will assist and enable Am to fulfill its sacred mission. And that's the real reason why the notion of Rome is Rom is exalted because in the end Rome is exalted by Hashem when it goes from being Magdiel to becoming Iram. So my friends, let us end on the hopeful and optimistic note that the Shalom v'chiadaber Haymulamul Kama represents the challenges of yesterday. Let us end with a, a prayer. A cry out to Hashem. Rabbas Shahnal Nafshi." Yes, call us. It's far too long. We've been inundated by the Haimala mochama. The Shalelam. We're ready for the Sheer Hamalot. We're ready for the Aliyah. We're ready for the tremendous elevation that will come out of the unprecedented deprivation. We're ready to move from Agdiel to Iram. We hope and pray that these last moments of Golos will be filled not with hate, but with love. Not with persecution, but with appreciation. As we shed the light of Torah and Yiddishkeit for the whole world, which will presage and pave the way, be'ezer Hashem, by the help of God, very speedily and in our days, for the coming of Mashiach and the joyful, songful sounds that will emanate from the third Beis Hamikdash, be'mheira will be amenu, amen. Thanks so much for joining today. If you aren't yet, please. Subscribe to my channel, youtube.com forward slash I look forward to seeing you. Have a beautiful day.